Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are interviewing Michael Karasik. He's an object assistant professor of biblical Hebrew at the University of Pennsylvania. He has several books, and most notably, he's got a commentator's Bible covering various books of the Bible, such as Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And he also has a book coming up on Genesis. The reason we are talking to him today is uh, he has written a very interesting paper. This paper was written in the year 2000, and it's on the limits of omniscience. And it's all about, in the Old Testament, or he's Jewish, so he just says the Bible, how God tests people throughout the Bible as a way of knowing what's in their hearts or minds, as he'd say in the paper. So, sir, can you tell us a little about yourself? Sure. I'm a Chicagoan who lives in Philadelphia now. I was a computer programmer and uh, had always been drawn to the study of the Bible and started doing it in my spare time, and then it became my full-time because I wanted to continue learning about Bible. And at a certain stage of my life, the only way to do it was to get a Ph.D. So I went to Brandeis University and got a Ph.D. in Bible and the Ancient Near East, a job that my wife got brought us to Philadelphia. And so here I am doing various kinds of teaching and writing and translating all about the Bible and podcasting, I guess I should say. Right. You have uh, the podcast, and well, you first of all, you blog on The Bible Guy, and then you have a podcast, and people could search for it on iTunes or Podcast Addict, and it's called Torah Talk. That's and, right. Yeah, so there, you have some pretty interesting episodes out there. I was listening to one on the priestly garments, and, uh, you know, it's a lot of... Uh, technical stuff that people just they kind of might skim over when first reading the bible so it's pretty interesting so i try to do the technical stuff in a in a way that people will understand yeah so i suggest everyone listening uh, go listen to those podcasts and uh, keep updated with those as they come out so this paper um you wrote a very interesting paper about the treatment of divine omniscience in the Old Testament and that's that's a theme that uh, we continually touch on in our blog. Most of my listeners are open theists, there's some Calvinists and Arminians who believe in the classical attributes of divine omniscience. But your paper um you talk about how God in the Bible tests in order to learn. And that's God's knowledge is mechanistic. That means in order to figure out what someone's thinking, God tests them. So can you briefly give an overview of your paper and your conclusions in that paper? Yes. So as you say, it's a little bit of an old paper. I've I reread it. I can't give you the full argument in great detail, but there are any number of places, as your readers, certainly your listeners certainly know, where God Seems God is described as testing people in order to find out something about them. He tests the Israelites to see whether they will follow his rules when they are in the wilderness. He tests Abraham to see what will happen when he tells him to offer up his son. And although he doesn't tell Job about this, he is testing Job in that book as well. And there's a couple of famous places in the book of Genesis, which I guess is why they're famous, uh, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, and then Sodom and Gomorrah, I think it's in chapter 18, 18 where this happens. 
I don't remember exactly where the verse that I'm thinking about is, but in, in both cases, God says, I'm going to go down so I can find out what's going on, which makes it sound as if he, he needs certainty that he can only get by learning something he doesn't already know. Right. And another half of the paper points out that there are places in the Bible where, as well, also in the narrative parts of the Bible, people say things privately. They think them to themselves in their heart or inside them, the way Sarah laughed when she heard she was going to have a baby at the age of 90. And every time I was able to find one of those places in the narrative of the Bible, the narrative itself immediately outs the person's innermost thoughts and reveals them and makes clear that God knows about them, which is somewhat surprising if elsewhere God is presented as having to test people to know what is really in their heart. Could that be, uh, I might be skipping ahead a few questions, but could that be because, like, for example, if I say something to my son and he might have a thought of embarrassment or he might have a thought of revulsion or something, and just because I know him and what he thinks and how he acts, that I might be able to divine what's in his mind just by my knowledge of him or the circumstances. Is that a possibility? Sometimes it's definitely a possibility, but if we are talking about what's written in the Bible rather than trying to understand the character that the Bible is describing as a, as a real being, if we understand just what's written in the Bible, there are plenty of times when it seems that it is being presented that God just knows it right away. So when Esau says in his heart, I'm going to kill my brother, mm -hmm. The very next verse says, Rebecca was told that this was going to happen. And the commentators figure out all kinds of ways that she could know this, either that Esau couldn't keep it a secret and he told his friends at the bar, or that Rebecca was a prophet, and all kinds of different ways. But the text itself just presents, he said it in his heart, and she was told it immediately. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's uh, some background on this paper. It was written in the year 2000. That's about 16 years ago, ago when I was uh, still in college or just graduating high school. I'm dating myself, I guess. Uh, have your views? Okay. Uh, <laughs> have your views on this changed in the last 16 years? I haven't thought a lot about uh, the specific details of this paper. I haven't really reread it more than once or twice in that time, and I wouldn't say that I have. My, my views have developed in a specific way, but one of the points that I make in the paper is that God's omniscience or his lack of it is very much a choice that is made by the biblical writers in different sections of the Bible. And I would say that that's something I believe even more strongly than I did when I wrote the paper. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things about this paper. A lot of time, like a Calvinist commentator, someone who believes in omniscience and brings that theology to the text, they'll say that any story like the Genesis 18 and 19 text, they'll say, you know, that's just a plot device in order for, to further the narrative. It's it's not a real depiction of God. And your suggestion is maybe it works in the opposite way. Maybe in the case of uh, Sarah, knowing what's in Sarah's heart, 
the author is just adding that as a way to further the plot. Maybe that's the plot device. Maybe the omniscience is in the plot device. Maybe, or maybe not the lack of omniscience is the plot device, but maybe the omniscience itself is the plot device. Right. And I, I don't really want to get into, I don't want to get into a case where, you know, we're looking into a mirror that's reflecting a mirror of a mirror of a mirror and so forth. Mm-hmm. Cause that would be a little bit crazy, but I don't, think it's really smart to look into the Bible to find out things about the actual being that some of us pray to who we assume created the universe. It may be that every word in the Bible is divine and was created by that being, but that doesn't mean that they are all facts about him. The Bible itself portrays God occasionally as making sure that people absorb certain lies that he wants for his purpose to be achieved. And from my perspective, the Bible is full of writings by people who are trying to come to grips with God as they understood God. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, I am not willing to sort of read certain verses and say, well, this is what the real God is like, and other verses and say, that's a plot device. Yeah, that's that's definitely understandable. Would you say it's uh, fair to look at a verse or a chapter like Genesis 18 and say, this is what the author thought about God, rather than making our own conclusions directly about God? Can we make conclusions about the author of that specific text? Most certainly, if you can figure out who the author is. And of course, you can certainly say, any particular idea speaks to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, The thing that I, I remember that strikes me that I that I did mention in the the paper that you read is that in two different versions of the story of Isaac's birth being announced, which according to uh, the documentary hypothesis are in two different voices uh, in the Bible, both of them have someone laughing and not believing what God said and trying to conceal the laughter. Yeah both explaining Isaac's name, obviously, but they're both trying to conceal the laughter, and both times God immediately knows what's going on. So the laughter is because of his name, but concealing it and God's knowing about it, it's interesting if those are two different versions of the story that both contain that particular detail. Yeah, definitely. So in your paper, you make the very good point that in the Bible... Heart and mind, it's not that the, the same distinctions that we currently make in modern culture. Can you elaborate on that? A little bit. There's, there's something called anthropology, which is not what anthropologists call anthropology, but what biblical scholars used to call anthropology, that talk about how the biblical texts understand the mind. And I'd like to tell the story that an anecdote that I read, which I hope is true, about Carl Jung, who apparently visited the United States and went out west and met an Indian chieftain. And the Indian guy said to him, you Europeans, you white people are very strange. You think with your heads. And Jung said, yeah, where do you guys think? And he pointed to his heart and said, we think here. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely what is assumed in the Bible, that the heart is the seat of thought. They also talk... uh, for reasons that I'm not enough of an anthropologist to understand, they talk about the kidneys, or in some older translations of the Bible, the reins, 
as being a seat of thought or emotion, but the heart is really understood to be the place where thought goes on. And whether that changes the way you think about thought, I'm not really sure. I think the fact that we have learned so much about neurology in our day is what makes the big difference and not where in the body the thought is happening. In your paper, you state that God tests the heart like metal is refined in the fire. That's the illusion where you're smelting the ore and you get the impurities out of it. So the standard counter-argument for people who want to bring omniscience to the text is uh, testing is more about like shaping and refining and perfecting. And God tests in order to manipulate people rather than testing to know. So is that a possibility in the mind of the ancient writers? Well, most certainly. I mean, they use that expression. I didn't invent them. They talk very much about testing metal for purity. I, I would say lots and lots of the people who are biblical scholars, like me, teach courses in the Bible at the university. And that means when God tests Abraham in Genesis 22, Everyone wants to know, and people in the pews, at least the Jews in the pews, and probably the Christians too, want to know, is Abraham going to pass the test or not? What Mm -hmm. grade did Abraham get? And really, a test could mean, I want to find out how you will react. Many of the, of the, which of the many, which of the infinite possibilities of how you will act to this request, how you'll react to this request, are you going to do? And it's not a matter of pass-fail or did Abraham get an 89 or a 94. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was teaching so, Sunday school, and uh, it's two second and third graders. And one girl said her favorite story was Abraham testing. And I was like, yeah, because uh, he wanted to know what Abraham would do. And then he says, now I know, right? And another little girl, she, she, she piped up and she's like, but God already knew. I'm, so I said, well, then what's the point of the test? And she just kind of sat there dumbfounded. And then she's like, but God knew what he'd do. Well, then why did that test happen? And she just didn't know how to respond. Well, that is very much uh, that is very much a response by people who are older and perhaps even wiser than your Sunday school students. And the commentators in the commentators' Bible, the Genesis volume will be out in 2018, uh, God willing. The commentators in the commentators' Bible go to great lengths to explain why God, God does this kind of test when he already knows the answer. But it doesn't seem to me that the writer assumed that God knew the answer, and it doesn't seem to me that people in biblical times always made that same assumption that so many religious people make now. Or it needlessly complicates the narrative. And so it it makes something that seems like it's uh, pretty cut and dry into something that you have to you know, really do mental gymnastics to try to turn the story into something that's not present in the story. So. I agree, but if you make the assumption that this is not just a story, but a story about a God that really exists, then the God that really exists has certain characteristics, and people try to interpret the Bible in a way that fits in with the God that they find most believable, I guess. So I'll quick jump to the Exodus 32 narrative where Moses is on Mount Sinai with God and uh, he convinces God not to destroy Israel through a series of arguments. And then some commentators will turn around and they'll say, well, all this was for Moses' sake because, uh, of course, God knew he would never destroy Israel. 
but he was setting up a series of events to teach Moses something about himself. You know, do you, do you see that as a legitimate understanding of like the Genesis 18 narrative, the Genesis 22 narrative, the Exodus 32 narrative? I would never say that that's not a legitimate understanding. There's lots of people who have that kind of understanding, but it doesn't satisfy me. Yeah, I teach the book of Job from time to time, and the book of Job states very clearly that Job did not deserve to have the sufferings brought on him and Mm -hmm. explains very clearly why God did it anyway. And students jump all over themselves to do what the character Elihu does in the book of Job Mm -hmm. to prove that God was really doing this for Job's own good. Right. The book states very clearly why he was doing it, and that was not involved. <laughs> so it's a, definitely an impulse that people have, and there may be places in the Bible where it is more justified to see that impulse. But I think it is really coming from people's beliefs in God rather than from what the Bible says. Right. Well, while you mentioned Elihu, what is your opinion of his role in the narrative? Well, in my book, The Bible's Many Voices, I try to describe the book of Job along the lines of a symphony. It's really the great Beethoven symphony of the Bible from my perspective. And that lets me fit some of the parts of the book together that don't necessarily flow as well together when you sit down and read it through, which is admittedly a very difficult book to read. Mm -hmm. Elihu is the, from my perspective, is the the comic relief of the (laughs) symphony. Okay, the third movement where the dance movement or the scherzo, where you get to joke around a little bit and relax after the incredibly profound back and forth of the dialogues with the friends, and that beautiful, quiet poem in Job 28, Where Can Wisdom Be Found?, which is like the slow movement of the symphony. And it's very moving, but it's relaxing in the sense of the tension and the power and the storm and drang of the beginning of the book is not there. And it gives you a little bit of relief because as soon as God enters the book, the storm is back. That's what I think Elihu is doing. Uh, Whether the original writer of Job created Elihu, you Your listeners who have studied the book of Job know that that's a question for some people. Mm -hmm. I don't really have an answer for it, but that's how I understand Elihu working in the book as we have it now. Yeah, David Klein thinks it's misplaced, actually, and uh, it should go um, right before God's intervention, and that Elihu, much like you described, acts as some sort of foil character to God being introduced to the text. So I think he he and some other... Teachers of mine very strongly believe that that poem, Job 28, is in the wrong place and comes at the end of the Elihu speeches. And they may be correct, but I I sort of haven't worked my mind around to be able to accept that yet. All right. Well, yeah, that's uh, actually Elihu and the book of Job. I really love it. So that's why I'm pulling us off track a little bit on this uh, interview. Job's probably my favorite book of the Bible. It certainly will repay a lifetime of study, and neither of us will get to the end of it after just one lifetime. Oh, I definitely think so. 
There's quite a lot to digest in there. So let's go back to your paper real quick. You just describe God's knowledge as mechanistic. And when I say mechanistic, most people thinking about God's knowledge is it's, it's just inherent. God just has this knowledge, and there's no way of acquiring this knowledge. And certain commentators, like Adam Clark, he posits that God knows things because God sees things. And, and that's a more mechanistic knowledge where you have to do something in order to gain the knowledge. And in this paper, you're really talking about this common con- conception that God is testing in order to know. Uh, I don't recall using this term mechanistic or mechanistic. Oh, I do. I, that's what I'm okay. introducing. I'm sorry. So I don't think that's what God is depicted as doing in the Bible at all. That strikes me as uh, a philosophical idea about God, which may or may not be correct, but not the way that God is described in the Bible. God is very much a person in the Bible. I don't mean a human being, but he's a being, a person with a personality. Yeah, definitely. And that's different from mechanistic. I mean, even the things that we human beings think about our perceptions being mechanistic are not true. We're not, you don't look at an apple or a table or a chair or a face and know what it is. Your brain actually has to process those pixels for you to know. And that's so transparent to us most of the time, we don't pay any attention to it. When it breaks down, you realize that that's what's going on. And so even our perceptions are not mechanistic in that way. And God's, I don't, I certainly don't think even the real God's perceptions are mechanistic. Well, maybe mechanistic uh, is the right way. term. Maybe organic is a better term, where it's it's growing okay. and learning and testing and acquiring. Would Would that be a good term? Again, I don't know what it is that you're trying to get at. If the question is, does God know everything or does God have things to learn? It would seem to me if God knows everything that is mechanistic in the sense that perhaps the medieval philosophers meant it, although I don't know as much as I should about them, Mm -hmm. that somehow the universe is a part of God's being in a way that he knows what's going on at every moment in every point. There's a famous expression that I've heard from Isaac Barbanel, and I don't think he coined it himself, but I don't know where it does come from. If I knew him, I would be him. Mm-hmm. If you knew God perfectly, you would be God, because God's essence is the knowledge of everything. It could be. So you can call that mechanistic if you want, I guess. <laughs> All right. Um, so you have, I believe, uh, some books about the development of uh, Hebraic thoughts, thoughts in Judaism. Um, do you see any development in the Old Testament towards more of these classical concepts such as omniscience? Like, do the the authors of Genesis do they are they refined by later authors? Well, I'm a long way from being able to tell you when every text in the Bible was written and by whom. Mm -hmm. And as I say, even in Genesis, there is that place where somehow Esau's thoughts are known and the text doesn't bother to tell us how that happens. Right. I think it's a big jump from anywhere in the Bible to 
the ideas of God about the medieval philosophers. That's a thousand-year gap or more. Mm -hmm. And rather than development, I would say there are different writers in the Bible who have different ideas. One of the things I wrote about in my dissertation, which eventually got published as a book, Theologies of the Mind in Biblical Israel, is that there's lots of places in the Bible where you can more or less get an idea of what people thought about the mind, the human mind, who were thinking that much about it, just the sort of unconscious assumptions that people made. But that there are writers like the Deuteronomist and the wisdom writers who created the book of Proverbs, some of them at least, who do seem to be thinking in very specific ways about the mind. So undoubtedly, there are some of those people who also had very specific ideas about what God knows and doesn't, and lots of people who had fairly casual ideas that they might never think about unless you press them with the question. Mm -hmm. And in terms of development, I don't think I can, I, I know that I can't trace a course of development for you about God's mind. Okay, uh, that's, that's fair enough. Uh, are you familiar with the works of Philo at all? Philo, 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 you're talking about? Yeah, of Alexandria. Very little. He's he's a little bit too philosophical for me, but I know <laughs> who you're talking about. I've read little bits of Philo, not very much at all. Oh, okay, that's fine. Uh, a lot a lot of the stuff I read of through him is uh, kind of where I see kind of a turning point in which Judaism starts focusing on more of these abstract concepts, but. I'm not suggesting. It's very interesting because Philo is a guy who, from my understanding, has had uh, a fairly serious run uh, in Christian thought mm -hmm. and zero impact on Jewish thought. <laughs> that is really funny. There's some ancient uh, writers who considered Philo a Christian, which I think is absolutely ludicrous. So yes, well, I think it's. Uh, again, I'm, I'm very much out of my depth here, but I think the same thing that happened to him as with Josephus, where certain paragraphs were added to his writing to, in a, from a Jewish perspective, I would say, to, to make him kosher as a Jew, but in this case, to make him whatever the equivalent would be of kosher as a Christian, which he didn't actually write. I know this right. happened for Josephus, and I think it may happen for Philo as well. Yeah, that definitely could be the case. So you are working on your next uh, book, is the Commentator's Bible. Can you tell us a little bit about that on Genesis? Yes. So the traditional Bible that you would find in a Jewish synagogue, at least for the last 500 years, is not one book between two covers, but a big set of volumes on each page of which there's a few lines of Bible completely mm -hmm. surrounded by translations into Aramaic and commentaries covering at least a thousand years. And my project, which I started on, believe it or not, on September 11th, 2001, <laughs> was to turn some of those commentaries into an English language Bible that's why there's a separate volume for each of these. Each of the first five books of the commentator's Bible, Exodus is one volume between two covers, and Leviticus is a second volume. Mm -hmm. Numbers, Deuteronomy, and now Genesis will be completely separate volumes. That's how Jews read the Bible. And 
in my Bible, the Hebrew text is still at the center of the page, but everything else is in English. There's two English translations, both of them done by the Jewish Publication Society, which is based here in Philadelphia. One of them about 100 years ago, and one of them 40, 20 to 40 years ago. Hmm. Make it 30 to 50 years ago now, <laughs> uh, which, even though know, that's called the new translation. Yeah, we always have uh, to be updating our time frames, don't we? <laughs> that's right. And then commentators, starting with Rashi, the great French commentator, 11th century French commentator, who is still the standard for Jewish study today, starting with kids in kindergarten, if you go to the right kindergarten, which I did not, and three or four more of his fellow commentators spanning a number of centuries around that text on the page. And that is what the Commentator's Bible is. Uh, if any one of your listeners is interested, you can actually go to uh, the University of Nebraska Press website. They publish JPS books now. Mm-hmm. You can look for the Exodus volume of the Commentator's Bible, and there is a PDF sampler from it that will give you an idea of what the page looks like. And that, although traditionally in Hebrew, that is how Jews study the Bible and not by opening up a book that has nothing in it but the text of the Bible. Yeah, that actually sounds pretty interesting. I was listening to Rabbi Sachs talk, and that's one of the ways he talked to the Prime Minister of England, because he, I'm not sure who it was, who was talking to David Cameron maybe, but uh, he saw that he, Rabbi Sachs was reading this interesting book with all these texts surrounding it, and that's how he broke into the dialogue of, you know, what he's reading and why he's reading it and and how to read the Bible. And it, it's just an interesting take on, there's just a flowing commentary, and I kind of like that style. Yes, it is very much, the Bible is very much a center of Jewish conversation, and that page more or less assumes that, after you have lurked on the fringes for a while, you too are going to join the conversation. But you actually get printed on the page is another thing, but <laughs> that you'll be part of the conversation. My guest today has been Michael Karasik. You could uh, look up his podcasts on Torah Talk and also follow his blog on Bible Guy. Any closing thoughts for our audience? Uh, it's it, You have what seems like a very interesting podcast, and I'm going to have to listen to another episode that has someone other than me to find out more about it. So thank you so much for your time today, and uh, if anyone has any questions or comments, feel free to put that on the God is Open webpage or our Facebook companion group, God is Open. 